Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hey friends, welcome today. We're here for another episode of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. And I am blessed today to have Rick Duncan. He is up in Northeast Ohio. He is actually really close to Blossom Music Center, which for people in Ohio and certainly in Northeast Ohio can go to and go see concerts and he planted a church years back and has since hand over the reins and is more in a specialty area now. And, and I'm, I'm very drawn to succession planning and how people transition and hand off the baton or pass the mantle of leadership. And for people that know me, know I'm a huge fan of all things Southeast Conference. And Rick had the pleasure of uh, playing a little baseball in Nashville, Tennessee at a place about... 10 minutes from where I grew up for a little while at Vanderbilt, the uh, Ivy League school of the South, I'll call it, since I'm a, a fan of Vandy myself. And uh, what a pleasure to talk about a number of things today. So welcome, Rick. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, well, thanks for reminding me of that blast from the past. That was a long time ago when I was in Nashville playing for Vanderbilt. But um, yeah, it's it's great to kind of follow them. You know, these days you can actually go online and you can, you know, watch highlights from all the games. And so it's kind of fun for me here to look at what Vanderbilt's doing now in baseball. So, yeah, it's great to be with you. And what, what was it, real quick, we'll stay on that. What was it like back then? What was their success as, as a baseball team around your time, your era? Because I know they've obviously been doing really well and probably David, David Price helped kick that up, I guess, some, but they've been really – killing it the last several years. So what was it like in your time compared to now? Yeah, well, they technically are still the reigning national champions. Here exactly. we are in 2021. Yeah. There wasn't a baseball season last year. Mm -hmm. At least they didn't finish it. And so they won in 2019. So they're, they're the reigning national champs. And we were never quite uh, that good, but we were good. We won the Eastern Division of the SEC my freshman year, and we uh, won the, the whole shooting match uh, my sophomore and junior years. So we beat Alabama for the championship uh, in the tournament uh, both those years. So we, we were good. One, one time we were ranked like eighth nationally and went out on the West Coast and beat Arizona State and USC. So uh, we, we, had, we had a pretty good run when I was there at Vanderbilt, but not like they have today. Sure. And the field, the field, we, we had the worst field in the Southeastern Conference back in those days. I think they probably have the best field in the Southeastern Conference now. And the field was where it is. Mm. <laughs> so they made some remarkable improvements. They moved it a little bit uh, away from the football stadium, maybe 30 feet or so. But basically, the field is where it was back when I played. And, of course, I was there 71 to 75. So long time ago. How could Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee – Southeast Conference ever be said that they had the worst? It just doesn't even seem possible. Not, not Nashville with all the resources there. And of course, with Vandy alums, it's not like a lot of folks who went to Vandy aren't making some money. <laughs> well, the baseball program was um, 
an afterthought, I think. Okay. Well, I think all sports at Vanderbilt kind of was an afterthought. Not anymore. You know, Tim Corbin is doing an outstanding job down there. And um, so hopefully, you know, the basketball team, the football team can follow suit. But the guy that started the team or coached the team that I was on is a guy named Larry Schmidt. And uh, he, he's still there in Nashville, uh, but he's a he's a huge entrepreneur. So he was he was able to figure out how to get a bunch of great players from Nashville to play for him at Vanderbilt. Uh, he got a couple of guys from Chattanooga and some guys from out of state. And, you know, we built a pretty strong program there. That's neat. You know, two things right now that really intrigue me about Vanderbilt. One is uh, in a million years, if you would have told me that in 2021, and I guess this was true of last year as well, that the basketball coach would be Jerry Stackhouse. I would have said, what? How is <laughs> Jerry Stackhouse coaching Vanderbilt? But it's true, um, which, you know, I would have never placed him there. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how he does because obviously, you know, Vanderbilt has challenges at times competing with the Kentuckys and now Arkansas stepped up and LSU and Florida and some of these other schools. And then the other thing is, I don't know how much you follow pop culture, but I'll tell you someone that gives Vanderbilt a lot of love is comedian Nate Bargatze. I don't know if you're familiar with Nate at all. Who, uh, oh just, no, no, I don't know about it. I'll have to check that out. Well, go to go to uh, go to Netflix. He just had a, a new comedy special debut last week, um, and it was it's called like the great the greatest average American. He's very yeah. self-effacing. I, I come from a young life background, and he's definitely got kind of a young life type of sense of humor, and he laughs at himself. And uh, he's got a podcast called Nate Land, and it's really really good. And uh, yeah, Nate gives Vandy a ton of love. I mean, they get, he's wearing gear on the podcast and it's on video as well. And he's got all the great Vandy hats and Vandy pullovers. And in fact, I don't know about you, but one, one of the things I saw on, um, I guess it was on Facebook or Twitter or something a while back, he had a day where he was playing golf. Uh, my, my dad knew the golf course by looking at the background. I think it was someplace in Franklin and he was playing golf with Shay from Dan and Shay, which sadly I'm not a country music fan. So that doesn't mean much to me. But it was, he was playing with Toby Mac too, and I said, "Give me wow. Nate Bargatze and Toby Mac. I don't need. I'm terrible at golf, but I'll carry clubs well." And I said, "That would be <laughs> that would be a golf outing. I'd like to be at and hang out with those guys for a little bit." So it might have been the course where we played uh, a few years ago. We had celebrated our 40th anniversary of our first championship in '73. And uh, so we we went out and played golf out there in Franklin, and I think it's the home course of the Vanderbilt golf team. So that might have been the uh-huh. same the same course, but uh, but yeah, they brought us out on the field and uh-huh. you know cool. read a bunch of stuff about what we had done. And I was just super impressed with the baseball team, the coach. Those those guys would stand at attention, look you right in the eye, shake your hand. Uh, thank you for leaving a legacy for us to live up to all this kind of stuff. I'm going, Holy cow. We, we had a bunch of guys that were smoking pot and drinking. Beer. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. So what, what was that like? I mean, I know, you know, a lot of people, I grew up loving sports. I still love sports. I mean, anybody and everybody would dream of being a division one college athlete on whatever level. What, what is something even more significant about having that experience like you do than what someone like me could even imagine? What was great about being a division one college baseball player or just college athlete in general? Well, I do think that it probably has opened some doors for me uh, afterwards. I also think I'm a little bit unshockable as a pastor. Like, like, (laughs) 
and I and I spent five years playing minor league baseball too. And minor league baseball, I mean, it can get pretty raunchy. Um, so the language, the lifestyle, uh, the alcohol, the the drug abuse, all that kind of stuff, I've kind of seen up close and personal. And I, I hate to say it, but I think it kind of prepared me for ministry mm. that like, okay, you you really can't throw very much at me that I haven't seen. And, and I was a Christian at Vanderbilt. I was a Christian in pro ball. So I didn't like partake in a lot of that stuff. Um, some, some a little bit, uh, especially my sophomore and junior years at Vanderbilt, I was kind of straying a little bit from the Lord, but I think it's really prepared me for ministry. And like I say, I do think it has, has opened some doors and you made reference to the fact that, that Vanderbilt is a strong academic institution. And I think that's been, um, something that people kind of see on the resume and they go, Oh, okay, maybe this guy's not not that dumb after all. I mean, you know, when you come to Northeast Ohio to plant a church and you have this Southern accent, like I have people deduct a hundred points from your IQ as soon as they hear you talk. So, so having that Vanderbilt degree uh, makes people go, Oh, well, maybe he's not as dumb as he sounds. Right. (laughs) Yeah. If I had married a woman from Warren, I think I would feel the exact same way because yeah, I would have thought, you know, loving Nashville the way I do. And I'm you know born there and still claim Nashville and about anything and everything I possibly can. I would have thought that about you back then, Rick. So I, yeah, I definitely hear you. So, <laughs> hey, you, you've referenced a few things related to your relationship with the Lord. So give us a little, give us a few minute version here of your testimony. Let's let's hear how you came to Jesus. Yeah, well, uh, my dad's a pastor and he, I was actually born in Ohio. He trusted Christ late in life. We moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee, where he went to seminary. And uh, so I grew up in a pastor's home. We were in a really strong church. So when I was uh, a little guy, um, I can remember going home at bed at night, <laughs> worried about the state of my soul <laughs> and my eternal destiny, told my dad about it. He went through kind of like the classic Romans road, um, mm-hmm. all of sin falls short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death, the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord just went through that process with me. And um, so I knelt by my bed with my dad and prayed to receive Christ. I think I gave as much of what I knew about me to as much of Mm. what I knew about Jesus. And I think Jesus did uh, transform my life at that point. So I should be a lot further along as a follower of Jesus than I am (laughs) because I'm 67 now. So over 60 years, I've been a disciple of Christ. Uh, So anyway, my dad had the privilege of, of leading me to faith in Christ. You said 67 (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you do not look sixty-seven at all. Come on, Rick. That's hey. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You made my day, man. I do not see that one at all. Let's be really clear about that. There's a couple of areas where I'd really like to spend a lot of time. So, starting and planning a church, doing what you did, going to Northeast Ohio. You know, my extended in-laws and families up there, and you know, just what I know about that area. There's some good things I've really grown to love and appreciate some things about that area, but I think planting a church up there would be difficult. So talk about, we obviously all, anybody's going to listen to this probably knows someone that has planted a church. The statistics are crazy. I know for how that quickly fails and you don't make it. So what was that like? Speak about church planning, the start of that, the process, so on and so forth. Yeah. So after baseball, I spent five years in minor league baseball at age 26. I was playing actually for the Nashville Sounds 
And, you know, it just felt like, you know what, I, I should be further along in my career. It's probably time for me to go do something else. So the sports writers in Nashville wrote an article about me, quote, retiring. I don't know how you retire at age 26. <laughs> but it, the FS, FCA guy, the Fellowship Christian Athletes guy, Steve Robinson in Nashville, saw that article. He called me and he said, hey, would you like to work for FCA I, in Jacksonville, Florida? I'm going, what do you do? <laughs> mm-hmm. So he told me a little bit about it. I went down for an interview. And there I met Bob Tebow, who's mm-hmm. uh, the dad of Tim Tebow. So Bob was my predecessor in that position, and then we ended up going to his church, and he was a pastor for me. So Bob planted a church in Jacksonville, and I thought, hmm, I wonder if I could do that. And now that I reflect back, I was kind of an entrepreneur guy. I remember one year I was playing for Orlando in minor league baseball, and I decided I'm going to get the gospel to everybody in the whole Southern League. So I found Christians on each team and I raised money from a business guy (laughs) to send out letters with evangelistic gospel presentations. I think we called it the three-dimensional athlete and uh, told them, hey, if if you're interested in talking about Christ, here's somebody you could talk to on your team. I I mean, I was always trying to start stuff, started Bible studies on these baseball teams that I was on. So I think I had some of that entrepreneurial DNA in me. And then uh, Bob got me set up to preach at the church in Jacksonville. And I think God said, you know, invest your life in the local church. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for the church. If you're working for FCA, you're, you know, you're really getting leftovers. People should be devoting themselves to their church more than they should be devoting themselves to FCA. Mm. So I left there, went to seminary, and uh, my uncle was uh, a state missions director here in Ohio. So he kept trying to get me, come to Ohio, come to Ohio to plant. So I think I mentioned before, I had a chance to interview to plant a church in Central Florida, where a lot of people were moving. And I had a chance to come here to Ohio, to Cleveland to plant, where a lot of people are not, they're moving from here, not Mm -hmm. to here. Uh, So when I was at Vanderbilt, there was a guy named Tom Petersburg. He worked with the uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, we call it back then, Crew Now. Mm -hmm. And he worked primarily with athletes. Well, he left uh, there, Nashville, and came to Cleveland and began to work with pro athletes for the Browns, the Cavs, and the Indians. So I called him up and I said, tell me about the spiritual climate in Cleveland. And he said, most pastors are defeated, depressed, and discouraged. And there are only about a half dozen churches that I would consider going to in all of Northeast Ohio. Wow. So I hung up the phone and I went, whoa, that sounds like some high heat right there. That sounds like a fastball. (laughs) Let's let's see if we can hit it. I don't know. God used that challenge to touch my heart to say, let's go and let's see if we can make a difference in an area that has more need. You know, uh, there's more churches per capita in Nashville than there are in Cleveland. So if I plant a church in Nashville, I mean, there's a need for that. But I think there's a greater need in Cleveland. And so I came here with a with a missionary mindset. You know, I felt like I'm a sent one to Cleveland uh, to to do some things about helping to change the spiritual climate of a city. So anyway, we're still here. It's been uh, since 1980, 1986. We got here in 1986. 35 so, years. Yeah. So are you like me? Do you also believe part of that missionary journey is to teach about the SEC compared to the Big Ten? Well, 
<laughs> Come on, as help me, Rick. Help me. Hey, hey, hey. I as a missionary, okay. I have to really watch out about how much I wave the SEC flag because this is Big Ten territory. It is Ohio State territory. And my wife went to the University of Alabama, so she she grew up across from the football practice field. Bear Bryant, Joe Namath, Steve Spurrier, all those guys used to come and eat at the restaurant. And she went to Alabama. She was in a homecoming court at Alabama. So she flies a flag on our house uh, for Alabama. And I'm going, it's a wonder that our house just doesn't get egged <laughs> all the time because Alabama, you know, pretty regularly faces Ohio State in the college playoffs mm-hmm. uh, for football. Seems like it. So, so anyway, I, I have to fake like I care about the Big Ten and I have to curtail my uh, enthusiasm about the SEC. And I do it for the sake of the gospel. <laughs> See, I, I say that I try to be very, when I look at social media, I, I primarily use Facebook. I like to be encouraging. I like to give quotes. I like to resource. I like to share events. I like to promote partners. I say, but when I'm going to take heat, I'm willing to pay the price when it comes to SEC. And people are like, well, hey, you're a Tennessee fan or you're a Vandy fan. Don't Why don't you talk about them? And I said, well, have you noticed what, ta- what Tennessee has done post T. Martin? You know, Vanderbilt, I could talk in baseball, but I said, let me stick to what I know I can win in an argument, and that's SEC compared to the Big Ten. So I'm willing to take the heat there. So, uh, Well, of course, course I don't like every team in the SEC. I mean, I I grew up in Chattanooga, and I probably was a UT fan, University of Tennessee fan, when I was growing up, but they didn't recruit me to play. So I went to Vanderbilt, and there at Vanderbilt, I learned to hate – the big orange. Sure. Please forgive me for saying that, but I learned yeah. <laughs> to hate the big orange. And I'll never forget, I, at a Fellowship Christian Athletes Conference in the early 80s, uh, Reggie White, uh, uh, NFL star, he's, he's, he's leaving Tennessee, coming to be one of our camp counselors. And I was the leader of the camp counselors. Uh, we call them the huddle, huddle leaders. Anyway, uh, he, he was a great guy because so enthusiastic. So he would say, you know, I'm just a nobody telling everybody oh. about somebody can save anybody. He had a whole a thousand kids chanting that. But um, our oldest son at that time was two. And so Reggie comes up to say hi to me and say hi to my little boy. So I'm holding him in my arms. And Reggie has, you know, big orange sweatshirt on, a big orange sweatpants on. And he comes up and he leans. He's real friendly. Reggie was really oh. friendly. So he would come up, leaned over to say hi to my son, Alan. And my son, Alan, you know, he's a little bit of a, I don't know, shy is not the right word, but like, don't get in my space. So mm. he took a swing. He's two years old, uh, takes a swing at Reggie White. <laughs> wow. And I say, hey, Reggie, we're supposed to train up a child in the way he should go. Mm. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. In my family, hate the big orange. <laughs> So don't be coming up here with that yeah. big orange sweatshirt and getting in my kid's face because you're going to pay for that. Wow. <laughs> you know, he's got one of the most unique voices. You know, that's a guy I really miss. I uh, actually have a gray 92 Reggie White Tennessee jersey. I don't wear jerseys as much as I used to, but I busted that out the other day. And I told, I don't know if it was my daughter or my youngest son, but one of them, I said, hey, you need to know, this is one of your dad's all-time favorite players. He was known as the Minister of Defense 
Those two words together had equal weight because he was a godly, godly man, and he was great on the defensive side of the ball. And uh, that voice, that smoky sound in his voice was – Second to none. So you've got me when you say Reggie White. I love Yeah, love, well, love. he grew up in Chattanooga where I did. And so our paths kind of crossed. He, in fact, when I went to seminary in Memphis, he was playing for the Memphis Showboats. Yeah. So we got to hang out a little bit there. And then, of course, uh, later I was up at a church conference here at Parkside Church where Alistair Begg's the mm-hmm. pastor. And all of a sudden I'm going – Hey, dude, that's where's Reggie White? He was, he was uh, at that time. He was trying to learn Hebrew. Wow. So, uh, what, a, what a great guy! Yeah, I bet. Yeah, he's one of those guys to me. I would imagine, you know, when you meet someone, you always hear the line something like, "When you meet someone who's, you know, you respect and you appreciate and you look up to him or whatever, you hope they're even better than what you think." I bet he was one of those men. Yeah, he was for real. Yeah, no yeah, question about it. I can totally see that. <laughs> well, Rick, I want to talk to you because you have, like I said, our church. So I'm I'm in a church in Springfield of a founding pastor who pastored for 49 years. He wow. just handed off the baton uh, back in January to a close friend of mine. Our families are close, neighbor of mine. The, the, the list goes on and on. And, um, you know, you, you always wonder, like, how's it going to go? I mean, we've seen plenty of examples in our country and all over where church world in my my world parachurch world where those handoffs do not go well and from everything i can tell at cuyahoga valley community church it seems like it's gone well so talk because it is so vital to the big c church talk about what that was like you know maybe when you started thinking about it you handed it off you're now in a new role with uh, more of a church planning leadership development emphasis so talk about your journey through uh, obviously starting and found, founding a church to transitioning and taking kind of the, the next stage of life assignment beyond being senior pastor? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. For me, I think it kind of began maybe when I heard uh, John Maxwell talk about leadership development. And I remember a quote, I heard him speak in Pittsburgh before too many people knew who he was. He said, there is no success without a successor. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I also heard somebody say, and I don't remember who said this, but if you want to know how great of a dad you are, look at your grandchildren. And I thought, wow, that, that's, that's, that's taking the long view. And so how well is your church doing when you're no longer the lead guy is a pretty interesting um, way to kind of look at evaluating ministry fruitfulness. So just in the course, when I was in my mid fifties, just, just in the course of just doing a Bible reading plan, you know, came across the whole story of Moses transitioning to Joshua. And uh, there, there was intentionality behind that. If you just kind of look at that story and you know how sometimes when you're reading the Bible, like something will just explode off the page at you. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the experience that I had. And so I began to journal about it. And then began to bring it up with the elders. Hey, what if I passed the torch of leadership, but didn't go anywhere? Because I don't want to go, you know, collect seashells on the shore down in Florida. I care about reaching Northeast Ohio for Christ still. And from here, the world. So I don't really want to go anywhere. This is my church. But I do feel like it would be wise for me to transition sooner rather than later. Now, going back to my dad, he pastored in Central Florida, and he uh, sadly got cancer right before he retired. And 
he was not able to transition out. And that church, uh, they, they built a building. They were doing really great things uh, in their community there in Lake Wales, Florida. Okay. But that church has never really been the same mm. since he was unable to transition. And I thought, you know what? I want to transition sooner rather than later while I still have some gas in the tank, while I still have some tread on the tires, uh, because I think God may provide me with other opportunities to, to lead, but I still want to kind of play a role here. So anyway, we, we kind of made that decision. The elders kind of affirmed that, and uh, we announced to the congregation, and basically we put it out there. Hey, we're looking for my successor. Uh, I'm going to spend two years grooming this person to take this position. And frankly, when we put it out there that we were looking for somebody, I thought to myself, I would not take the job because I don't I wouldn't trust the outgoing guy to actually hand over the reins. No doubt. hundred percent. So so I would probably not apply. But what was fascinating is we had get this six hundred people <laughs> interested in the position. Wow. And uh, the guy that eventually we called to come here is actually a guy from California. And what was interesting at that time, our church was running around 2000. His church out in California, he was the number two guy there. So he actually needed to um, kind of come up the leadership ladder two rungs, one to be the lead guy and then two to learn how to lead in a larger church context. So his church was running 800 or so. So, so anyway, um, we brought him in and uh, we just took kind of two years, kind of a methodical approach. I was preaching 75% of the time. He was preaching 25%. Then we went to 66, 33, 60, 40, 50, 50. And then over that two-year period, we switched to where he was preaching 75% and I was preaching 25%. So the, the image that we use is kind of like a dimmer switch. The, the spotlight was kind of going down on me mm-hmm. while the spotlight was coming up on him. And we don't even like to say pass the baton. We kind of like to say pass the torch. Because if you pass a torch, your torch doesn't necessarily have to go out mm. for the other guy's torch to be lit. You know, so you're lighting somebody else's torch and uh, then you can you know, carry your light to the world in, in a unique way. So I actually stayed on staff full time for about four years. And then a few years ago, I was called to uh, this new role with the North American Mission Board and Sin Network to kind of invest myself in training the next generation of planters. So I still teach and we're getting ready to launch a new campus now. So my teaching load is going to go up because I'll be teaching at both campuses a little bit. Uh, so um, I'm probably, I, I think I looked at it the other day, I'm probably teaching between some of our church plants, the, the, the uh, Broadview Heights campus, the Brunswick campus, and uh, some other local churches, I think I'm preaching like 26 times this year. So it's like every other week I'm, I'm speaking somewhere and I'm going, okay, that's, this is good. Um, look, maybe a little more than I wanted to, wow. <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's good that, you know, the, the old guy still has a role. And I kind of view my role as a grandfather. In other words, we got two grandkids we get to play with them. We get to invest in them. We get to provide for them. We get to enjoy them. Uh, but they're really Alan's responsibility. They're not my responsibility. Mm. And so my role is to help Alan do a good job parenting them. 
So uh, that's kind of the role that I see myself playing at the church is I get to be kind of the grandfather. So I, you know, Chad's not intimidated by me doing weddings or funerals or baptisms. He kind of likes it because it lightens the load for him a little bit. So sometimes people want me to do the funeral or they want me to do the wedding. And so I'm happy to jump in and do that. And then, like I say, I can come in and and preach. One of the things that I do, this is a real practical thing. If you're thinking about transitioning is, um, man, I quote Chad all the time. And some mm. of the staff, they get mad at me. They go, you could be quoting Jonathan Edwards or Charles Spurgeon or Tony Evans uh, or, you know, whoever, <laughs> Elizabeth Elliot. You, you could be, why are you quoting Chad? Who cares what Chad thinks? I'm going, well, I'm quoting him because I want everybody to know that I know who the lead guy is. And it's not me. It's Chad. And so um, I told everybody, look, if you got a problem with how Chad's leading, uh, don't come to me because I'm going to stick my fingers in my ears and I'm going to go, la, 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 la. I'm not listening. I'm not a soft place for you to land if you've got criticisms of Chad. I am Chad's fan. And I will say things to Chad because we have a good friendship to uh, challenge him and to encourage him and say, hey, what about this? What about that? But that's privately. That's between Chad and me. You know, privately, I can be a thoughtful critic. Uh, Publicly, I'm a raving fan Mm. of Chad. So just a couple of thoughts about some things that I think are important when you're thinking about transition like that. Sounds like you've really thought about and developed a real culture of honor, both you and how you love and serve Chad. And I would imagine it just radiates everywhere around where you are up there. Is that probably fair to say? Yeah. Well, we enjoy each other. You know I mean? We're different people, you know, we're different on the disc profile. And, you know, if you do an APES thing, I'm more apostolic. He's more the teacher guy, evangelist teacher guy, but um, we're, we're definitely different people. And he has made different decisions than I, than I would have made, but that's okay. Right. The church needed, a younger voice. I mean, I didn't want to preside over the decline of a church that's got a guy up there who's aging. And even though I try to, you know, I work out and try to stay fit and try to read and listen to younger preachers and try to be relevant. The reality is I'm 67. I'm a grandpa. Mm. (laughs) So, so uh, you can't change that. I have to be who I am. Right. So I'm not, quote, hip and cool um, and as as maybe relevant as I used to be. So what happens is you see guys like you see these baby boomers hanging on. And I think they hang on because I don't really trust that the Lord has something useful for me to do Mm, if I transition out. Um, I don't believe that uh, my fruitfulness is independent of my position. See, because fruitfulness doesn't come from a position or your prestige. Uh, Fruitfulness comes from your place in the vine. Mm -hmm. So if you're abiding in the vine, that's where fruit comes from, not your position as the lead guy. So, uh, and I believe that the better you abide, the more fruit you can bear And so it doesn't really matter if I'm, you know, the guy up front on the stage all the time. What really matters is am I focused on abiding 
in the vine. So I think some guys uh, struggle with that. Some guys struggle with the, their identity is wrapped up in their position. I can't transition because this is who I am. I don't know who I am apart from this position. And, and I think what can happen is if you hang on too long, then, you know, people's haircuts start looking like mine. You know, you got a bunch of bald people out there and you have a bunch of gray haired people or a bunch of people that are dying their hair and the church just gets older and older and older. And then it's tough to recover that momentum, you know, for uh, growth in the congregation. So I think there's a lot of reasons why guys, I think, should think about doing this sooner rather than later. I would rather pass the torch five years too soon than five years too late. And, and to me, it's, it's loving the church to do it. It's, it's being a good shepherd because yeah, a lot of guys, they will retire and then move away. And it's like I'm going, that kind of feels to me, I'm just speaking for myself, like you're a hired hand. Mm. Like you don't really shepherd. You're not shepherding the flock. It was a job to you. You were done with the job and you took off and left the flock behind. And then now they're floundering around a little bit going, well, what are we going to do? You know, to me, it's like, hey, why, if you knew you were going to leave, why didn't you help bring the guy in that's going to take your place? Yeah. You know what I think is very important? And I saw, I think our church did pretty well with this. And I've got a bit of a relationship with Bob Russell. And I think this has done, been done very well at Southeast down in Louisville is thinking about what are you going from to what are you going to? And that yeah. next assignment being a significant because, yeah, it doesn't have to be about the size of your church and numbers and how many times are you preaching. And I like what you said about it's being abiding in the vine and what your place is there. You know, Rick, one of the things I, in my day job, working with professional guys and ministering, you know, our taglines connecting men to men and men to God, I have found in 14 years that in many, many ways, men are not self-aware. You seem to me to be very self-aware. How much do you think that has been something the Lord has used and worked with to allow you to be fruitful? Well, <laughs> I don't know how self-aware I am. I, I want to be that. <laughs> That's for sure. A couple of things have been helpful to me. You know, I think I was in my early 40s and I took a sabbatical and I got Bob Buford's book, Halftime. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a great book. And I had read it already, but I thought, you know what, I'm just going to really slow down and um, get a journal and answer in detail every stinking question that the guy asks in the book. Because at the end of each chapter, there's a great list of questions. And, you know, most of the time you see those questions in a book and you're going to the next chapter. You're not really processing mm -hmm. those. So that was really helpful to me. The other thing that happened is I took a counseling course. There was a lady in our church that took this course through Moody Bible Institute from a local Christian counseling group. And she came and she said, Pastor, I think this would really be good for you to equip you to be able to, you know, care for the flock better. I'll pay for it if you'll take the course. I said, okay. So every Monday, I would go and spend four hours, two hours in a lecture, then two hours in basically group therapy uh, with a Dr. Michael Misha here. And man, I learned some things about myself how I got to be really a type A obsessive compulsive workaholic type of guy who measured his success based on outward performance. 
uh, I figured I figured out what happened to me. Part of it has to do with baseball. Part of it is because um, as a little guy, you know, I was musical and got a lot of praise for that. I could play baseball and I got a lot of praise for that. I was really good academically. I got a lot of praise for that. And I thought to myself, wow, this feels pretty good getting all this, um, you know, recognition. So I better, I better keep doing really good to keep that recognition coming. So my identity got wrapped up in performance Mm -hmm. and baseball doesn't help because everything's measured. Like, right. (laughs) Like you're only as good as your latest game. And uh, we keep track of errors and pass balls and, you know, base hits and how many total bases did you have and all these stats. So one of the good things about baseball is like you learn how to come back after a failure, right? Because if you're successful in baseball, you fail seven times out of 10. But uh, the other thing is, though, you're, you're again, measuring your value based on your performance. Mm -hmm. And I'm a guy that didn't make it to the major leagues. I made it to double A. So this dream that I had for 20 years to make it to the major leagues did not come true. So I'm going, all right, I'm going to be a pastor now. I'm going to be a church planter now. If I can't be a major league baseball player, you know what? I am going to be a major league pastor. I'm going to work my butt off. I'm going to do more. I'm going to try hard. And and if you think about it, again, you're getting your sense of identity from your performance. So I learned there was this innocent self, this little innocent Rick Duncan that got damaged. So I had a damaged self. Then I developed a compensating self, which is perform, do more, try harder. And if you're not careful then you're going you're gonna to hit a wall. And I think what happens to men a lot of times, they hit that wall and then they just redouble their efforts. Mm. And then they hit the wall and they redouble their efforts. And then they hit the wall and they redouble their efforts. And, and sometimes what happens to guys is they hit the wall and they go, this hurts, I'm going to turn to an illicit sexual relationship or I'm going to turn to you know booze or alcohol or I'll just switch jobs, you know, and, and rather than going, wait a minute, what I learned in my counseling is that there are three primary identities that we develop. There's the nice identity, there's the needy identity, and then there's the competent identity. Well, for me, it was competence. And what you got to come to grips with is like, you're not competent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're not competent. (laughs) So Jesus was competent for you. And and once you kind of let go and begin to, you know, apply Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, you know, where Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart. You're going to find rest for your souls. And so to me, it's it's continues to be a battle. It continues to be a process for me to, to repent of my competent identity and instead to believe the gospel that I am not enough, but Jesus is enough. And therefore, I'm accepted and valued and loved. And I have great worth in the sight of God because of what Jesus has done for me. 
So um, I'm not there fully. I'm I'm still learning. You're getting it. Uh, but but I'm I'm moving that direction. Sure, I think. <laughs> sure. We're going to take a quick pause and we're going to come right back to exactly kind of where we are. But I want to take you down what I like to call the rapid five. So these are kind of five silly, somewhat goofy, light questions. And uh, the first one, Rick, is what is your favorite childhood snack or cereal? <laughs> I don't know. Probably Fruit Loops. I don't know. <laughs> that was a tough one for me. But yeah, I, I remember Fruit Loops, man. I liked them. My kids will amen <laughs> that one with you. So what is your favorite sports biography, leadership book, spiritual formation book that you most have or want to gift to other people? Jim Elliott wrote a book. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, his wife put it together. He's the missionary that got killed by the Aka Indians uh, back in the 50s. And uh, there's a book called In the Shadow of the Almighty, where you get a peek into his journals and into his soul. And uh, man, I give that book to, to young leaders all the time. The other one that I think is really good, it's it's not really super inspiring, but it's called The Maker Making of a Leader by a guy named Robert Clinton who's a missiologist out at Fuller Seminary. And he basically talks about the six stages of leadership development. And I think it's especially helpful to young guys who who are moving forward. But anyway, I digress because it's supposed to be fast. No, I'm, going, I'm, I'm going on sabbatical. Else. I'm making note of both those. They're definitely in the shadow of the almighty. I've heard of that and want to dig in. So another one that's important for me, I've got four kids, 12 to 18, when we leave on vacation, now we're going, we're coming your way this weekend. So that's not, that's too close. But if we're going to the beach or we go somewhere, you know, quite a drive away, you can never fully prepare for that lunch break. And then inevitably one of my kids has to go to the bathroom about 10 minutes before we plan on stopping. So now we got to make a, a sooner stop and I'm not really prepared. So if, if you're with your family, think back to when you were, kids were at the home and all that kind of stuff. And you're coming to an exit sign and you see on that exit sign, McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, and we'll throw some love to anybody out on the West Coast. In and out Burger, where does the Duncan household stop? <laughs> well, most of our vacations have been in the South, so I didn't have the in and out choice. But let's I'm say it's on there. Chick- it's on there either way. Let's say it's on there. Well, it, since we don't have it, I'm going to <laughs> In and Out then. There you go. Yeah. 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 Hey, every time I go out there, I try to find an in and out place. And of course, you know, our new lead pastor, Chad, he's from California. Yeah. So he's all about in and out. So he's a big fan <laughs> of it, huh? Okay. I, I'm with you on that. I think some people will want to say to that question, well, you know, I'm in ministry, I'm a Christian, I got to say Chick-fil-A. I'm like, well, no, you don't. I mean, I love Chick-fil-A, <laughs> but in and out especially since there are not as many around here. I love it. So um, what is a trendy item of clothing or jeans or a shirt or pair of shoes? What's what's your trendy item of clothing over the course of your lifetime that you greatly treasure, whether you still have it or not? Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, people used to make fun of my Vanderbilt letter jacket. Oh, that's that a no-brainer. You got to go with that one. It, it was a gold, old gold jacket. And uh, man, my staff used to laugh their heads off when I would wear that jacket. But I, I kind of missed that jacket. I don't have it anymore. I what? Wish I had it. How'd that happen? What did you do with it, Rick? Well, I still have the letter. I still, the, the, you know, moths got to it or what have you, oh, but wow. I, I got the letter. So, wow. <laughs> All right. The last question, and I think it's the most important one. Who was your first celebrity crush? Well, um, there was a girl. I, I, I guess you're talking about a girl, right? Yes. 
Okay. Probably so TV show, a, movie, you know. Yeah, there, there, I don't remember this actress's name, but there was a show called High Chaparral. And there was this um, Hispanic lady who was married to this um, Anglo rancher. And I wish I could remember this actress's name. I should have looked that up, but uh, but yeah, that would she would probably be wow. my first crush. I'm a little too into pop culture, and that one totally slid right past me. So I have to we'll have to trade messages later and figure out who that was because I'm not sure I know who that is. So uh, well, let's get back to the serious stuff. So as you were talking about, um, you know, definitely some. Uh, of where you are and where you're hopefully going and arrived at with the Lord. Um, you know, Rick, and I, I don't want to say this flippantly, but I do, uh, for being friends on Facebook, you know, we've talked for a little while about either when I'm up there trying to connect or whatever. Um, I have definitely seen in you something that is very attractive about your relationship with Jesus. Uh, uh, heart's desire. Uh, obviously, you're a huge journaler. I mean, I've seen you post pictures of notes you take, either sermons or as you're studying and I'm like, wow, I know some people who are robust, but I don't think anybody's coming close to you. <laughs> so let us in a little bit, kind of with a 1 Corinthians 11, 1 lens, following your example as you follow the example of Christ. Where have you had some success in loving Jesus well? Uh, wow. That, well, thank you for the affirmation and the encouragement. But I, I would first say to people, hey, find a better example than me, please. <laughs> but uh, I do feel like I've been pretty consistent. Uh, you know, I don't bat a thousand, of course, in just cracking the pages of the Bible, picking out a verse, meditating on it, trying to find an application writing a short prayer. Uh, it helps that I do like pens and paper and fountain pens and <laughs> highlighters and all yeah. of that. So that, that helps a little bit. It gives me an excuse to use some of my tools, but just consistently being in the scriptures and um, it, not for sermon prep or ministry prep, but just um, going going through. I think that's been a, a, a real helpful tool. And then the other thing is I, I didn't mention earlier is, is being in uh, what I call a pastor's forum. Uh, mm. I mentioned earlier, the counselor that I met years ago through that training, Mike Misha. Well, I, I think I read something somewhere about how most men when they are going through tough times, don't really have a band of brothers mm -hmm. that they could turn to. And certainly that's true for pastors as well. Amen. So I reached out to Mike. I said, Hey Mike, uh, no, I'm through with the course, but what if we could just gather a group of Christian leaders and meet every other week for an hour and a half and just talk about our souls. Mm. And uh, yeah, that'd be a great idea. And what, what's really cool is the, the group has been a blessing to him. I mean, he probably gives more than he receives from the group, but it has been a good source of friendship for him as a counselor. Mm. But we've probably been meeting for 25 or may, maybe 30 years wow. now. And having that group every other Monday has been a, a rich source of, of blessing and encouragement. So I, I would say, you know, guys need to find friends where, mm -hmm. and, and we don't talk shop. I mean, Mike will, Mike Misha, the counselor, he will say, you're talking shop. Let's not talk shop. Let's not talk theology. Let's not talk doc doctrine. Let's talk about our hearts. Yeah. 
And so that whole, you mentioned earlier that you, you feel like I'm have some self-awareness and I hope I do, but that's probably been helpful mm-hmm. for, uh, in that journey for me. So get into the word for your own soul and be consistent about it. Spend some of that time in prayer, obviously, and then find a group of, of people where you can be honest and allow others to be honest. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you don't have to, you don't have to pretend to be somebody that you're not. When I see, see stuff you comment on or your post or just your heart just radiates to me, soul care, life, joy, not duty, not duty at all. So kudos. And I think you are living a great example. So we're going to close with this question. It's 2021. You know, when you think of these times, obviously COVID's still out there, but you know, it seems like we're kind of coming down a little bit. Where do you have a great hope in the gospel for the Big C Church? Speak to, especially in your role when you're helping with church planters, you're helping develop leaders. You know, why would you be more excited right now about the gospel than any point in your last 35 years since you came here? Yeah, I I do think when we first came to Northeast Ohio, it was a different era. And you could actually do attractional church. Like you could start a weekend service, try to have more relevant music and more relevant preaching and draw a crowd. And of course, um, Rick Warren, uh, a huge influence in helping churches like ours do some of that. So, you know, nobody was actually doing ministry the way we were doing ministry. And, um, but I think that era is gone. And I do think that this rising generation of young leaders that I have the privilege of working with, they recognize that we have to approach church planting or church leadership with a missional mindset. We've got to actually add value to the community and to people in the community So, you know, we say all the time, you know, people don't know, don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I think we've got a generation of people that don't just say that, Mm -hmm. but they're actually seeking to live that. And um, so I'm, I think, and, and as I hang around these young leaders, I'm going, man, you have so much more going for you Mm -hmm. and more understanding about the mission of Jesus and the whole issue of bringing about restoration to communities and to lives than I knew at your age. And so when I hang around these young leaders, I'm going, I think we're leaving the church in some good hands. So um, hanging around young leaders makes me extremely optimistic about the future. And then of course, just (laughs) what Jesus said, I will build my church And the gates it's of hell up. won't prevail against it. COVID Amen. can't prevail against it, right? Amen. The Amen. political division can't prevail against it. The racial unrest can't prevail against it. He's going to get done what he's doing. And yes. I just hope that the church in the USA and in North America is part of it. Amen. Uh, but, you know, the church in Iran growing rapidly right now. <laughs> so the Lord's going to do his thing. Yes. And so yeah. for that reason, we should be. Hugely optimistic. He wins, right? And that means we win. Amen. 
Well, Rick, we could go a lot longer, but uh, you're preaching right now and you're getting me excited. So I better end it before <laughs> I take about 30 more minutes of your time. So Rick, thanks so much for being on here today. You bless me. I'm sure anybody here is this is going to say the same thing. And uh, many, many blessings on your continued efforts in Northeast Ohio, Cuyahoga Valley Church and beyond. Yeah, well, thank you, Jeff. God bless. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Shine FM Podcast Network.